to The Straight and Marrow, a show that discusses all things allogeneic bone marrow transplant, from pre-transplant considerations to survivorship, using experiences of healthcare providers, patients and carers with current evidence to keep it straight. We are Yvonne, Ming and Alex, nurse consultants and nurse practitioners who are here to keep discussions on The Straight and Marrow. Today's episode, we're going to talk about all things medication, pharmacy, and allograft. And joining us is Chev Fernando, who works at the Alfred as a pharmacist. Chev graduated from Manus University with his pharmacy degree in 2009, and since then has dedicated himself to the field. He's currently working as a senior hematology pharmacist for inpatient and outpatient management of hematology and bone marrow transplant patients at the Alfred. Thank you for joining us, Chev. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to participate. Mm-hmm. Whilst I'm sure you have a, a you know, very nuanced view of pharmacy and medications, I've kind of compiled a couple of topics and questions that we hear a lot from patients, and I'm hoping to just shoot them at you. Perfect. Sounds good. How do you prepare people for discharge? Have you got any tips for the patients on how to manage their medications post-transplant. Yeah, I think the journey really starts in that pre-transplant education phase. Mm. I make an effort to try and see them before their transplant commences when they have their pre-transplant education with the nursing staff. COVID's hindered that a little bit. Patients not coming in as often. That's the first step. And then if that can't happen, it's really on admission for their transplant or even a phone call before Firstly, to get a history and stop anything that we need to for the transplant period. And then just putting that question out there saying, do you have any questions about what the next few weeks will hold? And then, uh, and then once they're admitted, asking the same question again. A lot of my work comes in during the ward rounds and afterwards I put my head in and saying, do you understand what's going on? Do you know why we're doing certain things? I think the buy-in with um, adherence and un- the medication is really having the understanding and the knowledge of why we're doing certain things, why we're giving certain medications. Often, you know, doing a bit of damage with some of the medications, so it's good for the patient or their carers especially to understand why we're using certain things and what mm. for. But there's a lot of medications, but each one has a purpose and sometimes some of the medications are to help you because you're having other medications. Exactly right. Mm. For example, for our AML patients, they might come in with four or five medications and then leave with 10 to 12 or so. Mm. Um, so a, a favourite line of mine is... Um, at the discharge point from their um, allograft that this is probably the most amount of medications we'll be on and slowly over time things will be tapering down and everything we are using is for a particular reason and we'll go through those reasons and then um, if we don't have to use it, we won't use it. Mm. So what kind of groupings do you put the medications in when you explain it to patients? I always start with the immunosuppression first. That's key and critical and really developing the understanding of graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis, why we use it. Uh, why we care about the levels and why we want adherence to be at about 100%. Mm. And from there, I move on to the anti-infectives. And I try to throw the, throw the azole soon after the immunosuppressant, so either the voriconazole or posiconazole. 
um, mainly because of the levels we measure as an outpatient. And I know that's a little different from every different uh, transplant centre. So every patients and carers can remember that we do check that, check the levels mm. as an outpatient. And then I'm yeah, anti-effectives and then I more move on to more supportive care things. So your um, stomach protection, anti-nausea medication, um, mm. VOD prophylaxis. Mm. Just breaking it down into one topic to help my understanding. Sometimes people might need more than one type of anti-nausea medication. Sometimes I feel like they can use a couple that can help them to get a good effect. What's your experience with that? How do you explain that to people? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the best, so the inpatient stay will give a good idea of what they'll need. And I think often the patients have a good understanding of what works for them. So it's mm. empowering them with saying, well, what works for you? And we'll give you that on discharge. And then explaining that each medication works on a different pathway we're trying to get to the same destination kind of using different routes on the freeway and then using you know multiple different mechanisms or different medications to try and get to the end goal of controlling their nausea because it's so important in the outpatient period where the nausea is controlled, they can eat, get their nutrition up, which will ultimately help with their recovery. So a uh, big part of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. With the immunosuppression, my understanding is that it really can make people feel quite unwell. The drugs that we typically use would be cyclosporin or mycophenolate or tacrolimus. Do you use those as well? Yes, we use those as well. So mainly, I guess, cyclosporin and you know, no, no one enjoys the smell of cyclosporin. Mm. So a couple of... Um, the large kids, tablet. The large tablet. Um, they yeah, smell bad, difficult to swallow. So a couple of things to help overcome that is because you have to keep it in the foil until you're about to take it is maybe if you have a helper who can open it for you, mm, let it that's sit. That's a good idea. Let it sit for about 15 minutes, let that air waft out and get the smell away and then take it down afterwards. The 100 milligram capsules are quite big. If they can tolerate more using the smaller strength capsules to that's make a good up idea. the dose. Mm. Yeah, a necessary evil, cyclosporin. It is a necessary evil. Unfortunately, it's, you know, the main aim is to prevent graft-versus-host disease with cyclosporin. And um, the evil there is graft-versus-host disease, which is, can be quite nasty. And hopefully what I try to reiterate is that you know, this isn't permanent. It's not for mm. a long time. Hopefully day 100, three months, and then we, we tape it off. So it's kind of getting through this period to make sure that we can avoid graft-versus-host disease. Sometimes when I talk to my patients, I can recommend giving them like a schedule, pill boxes, trying to establish medication taking as part of their daily routine to try and get used to being, to just taking the sheer volume of tablets, I guess. Yeah, 100%. Our process is always to give a medication list with a big dose set box. Mm -hmm. And the dose set box is big enough to hold the, the medicines like cyclosporin and mycophenolate, which are big tablets. And we encourage the patient themselves to fill out the dose box mm. or their carer. Two reasons for that. One is they get a very good understanding of what their medication looks like when they line it up with their medication list and they get a really good understanding of their doses. And also it's really easy to tell if you've forgotten to take your medication. So mm. if it's a Thursday at 11 o'clock in the morning and you're thinking, did I take my medication this morning? Go back to your medication box and see if, if it's gone or not. And it, you know, it might sound funny, but in a, in a busy day, especially if you have outpatient appointments and you've got yeah. lots going on, it's easy to miss those things. We do make quite a lot of changes to patients' medications in the outpatient setting, maybe pulling back on some cyclosporin or adding in anti-nausea. So I guess people could just change their dose set box as they go, as they become familiar with the medications? Yes, 100%. As you mentioned, another advantage of them filling it out themselves so they can make those medication changes themselves mm. and it avoids... 
uh, medication errors or, you know, if, they, if their carer is doing it, then they're on board and they can make the changes in, in real time. Mm. What about taking medications with food or without food? Do you get questions about that a lot? Yeah, of course, of course. Especially with the transplant medications, whatever it takes to get them down, mm. that's probably the most important thing. For example, penicillin mm. um, for prophylaxis, it says, the box says, an empty stomach. And I always say, if you can take it, just take it. It mm. doesn't matter, as long as you can take it. And certain other medication, you know, like for example, voriconazole, better on empty stomach, but we can measure the levels of it. So if you want to take it with food, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you're consistent with how you approach your medication. So it always works to take it with food, take it with food, but mm. be consistent. That's good advice. Yeah. What about over-the-counter medications? Yes. We, a lot of our patients are on things like magnesium and calcium mm. and potassium. So we always ask if, if there's anything new that you want to start, just have a chat to your doctor or, or the nurse, um, nurse prac or anyone looking after you saying just to check if it's compatible. Mm. There are a lot of dog interaction interactions with many of the allograft medications. So we just say to just check with us first and then we can always, you know, we can usually give a quick response if what's mm. um, appropriate or not and then go from there. Yeah, drug interactions. Yes. I feel like that's a big one, particularly with the antifungal medications that we can use, the posiconazole or noxophil, mm-hmm. that certain medications make it, less effective or, or at a stronger strength? Yes. Posiconazole is an, in the pharmacy world and it's notorious for drug interaction. So yep. it, mm-hmm. it um, stops one of the enzymes in our liver that metabolizes a lot of other medications. So uh. it even increases your cyclosporin or tacrolimus as well. Uh. Um, so it's important that doses of those change, that you know, the doctors are aware that they can adjust those accordingly. And especially with any new medications starting that um, we have to be careful, those new medications aren't bumped up too high by posiconazole. So, you know, even patients who go to see a specialist for another condition or a dentist, for example, that they know that patients on posiconazole are the drugs that can interact with it. What if someone misses a dose? Should they make up a dose if they've forgotten it? Or what if they vomit up their medications? What next? Another really good question. So um, especially... In hospital, it's always easy to make most of the medications in the morning. Mm. And then, you know, patients wake up at 7 o'clock for their morning <laughs> obs or 6 o'clock and then there's about 12 pills waiting there. So I say anything that's a daily dose, if you forget it, just take it when you can. Mm. Anything that's a three times a day or eight hourly or 12 hourly dose, it does depend on how late it is. If it's a few hours after that when that dose is due, the safest option is to leave it and then take the nighttime dose rather than uh, doubling up the dose at nighttime. That's a big risk there, especially with something like cyclosporin. If you miss it in the morning and it's now, um, say, 4 p.m., mm. then, you know, let that one go and then just take the nighttime dose rather than trying to catch up the morning dose and then taking another dose later on. Mm. Obviously, it's not ideal, but that's life sometimes. Mm. You know, we miss things and we forget things. And we mm. don't plan to. I suppose if it consistently happens to let your treating team know so maybe they can troubleshoot and help with some strategies to ensure that we can get those medications in. 100%. Yes. Yep. And with vomiting, it's, um, if you vomit and you can see it, then yeah, it's a hard one. Retake. Yeah. But, and if it's a liquid, we say within about, if you vomit within about 15 minutes, you can retake it. Um, mm-hmm. If not, it's probably best to assume that there's some absorption and yep. then take the next dose when it's due. Yeah. What about if people are fasting for a procedure like a bone marrow biopsy? So generally speaking, we say if you're fasting, you can take your medications with a small cup of water mm. and it gets tricky again with, depending on what the medication is. For example, steroids we like with food because it can 
affect the stomach lining and especially if you're on a high dose of steroids, not something you want to wait um, and later on in the day you miss, especially if you're going to have a procedure. So always good to have a chat to the person who's organising the procedure and just to check with them, you know, there might be some key ones that you can take mm. with a small cup of water that you don't miss and there might be some that you can just wait and take later yeah, on in the like day. like the once a day ones. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 So I get, with, with that scenario, because there's, there are some subtle nuances, it's always, always good to just check with the person who's um, organised the procedure, see which ones can be taken. That's a good idea. So... We've covered quite a few medications here and and there are a lot of them for good reasons. What are the sort of things to help enable people to take their medications post-transplant? I know you've mentioned the dose-set box and the familiarity. What other strategies do you use or encourage with people? The key concept is, I guess, knowledge is power and understanding yeah. why certain certain medications are given. I think that that's the most important thing. If patients know why they need to take it, often that works well mm. in saying that there are definitely circumstances where, um, you know, the pill burden is too many, there's just too many pills or the nausea is too great with the number mm. of pills. So I think as a pharmacist, my main approach is to try and follow up after discharge yep. uh, in about a, the first few days or a week or so just to see how things are going. Yep. And then I have you know, good communication, especially with our nurse practice and our, our patient staff who follow up and let me know. Mm. how things are going. If that becomes difficult, then we try to, I guess, minimise to the key and essential medications that they can take or you try to utilise alternate formulations, so whether it's changing some things to liquid or whether we can find out ways of crushing medications. But I guess the, the key message here is if, if, it's, if you're struggling and if it's not working, then to discuss it with the, your doctor or your mm. nurse prac to see what alternatives we can do to manage that. There are alternatives, things like, you know, having a Webster pack or a mm. pharmacy pack your medication. That's handy, but it doesn't mean you'll always follow those medications. Yep. And I think patients do lose that control with their medications, that intimate knowledge they have when someone else is packing that for them. Yeah, like as an inpatient maybe. Yeah, it is very handy. And if that's if that's a good way to go, then that, that's, that's completely fine. But I think the key thing here is communication and having an open line and trust saying, mm. if it's not working, let us know so we can help. Yeah. Like you say, knowledge is power. And it's true. And empowering people to take ownership and agency of their own health care always leads to better outcomes. Definitely. Yes. hundred mm. yeah. percent. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you understand why you're doing something, you're rather than being told what to do. And it's always, especially from our perspective, it's always easy yeah. to say, you just need, you need to take this or yep. this is for this. Yep. Um, but at the other end for the patient, if yeah, if you, if you don't quite understand why you're being told to do certain things, I think that often will lead to some non-adherence. Mm. There can be sometimes a bit of a psychological and, you know, mental block, you know, because people want to be well, their wellest self, and taking these tablets is kind of viewed as, as being unwell. But I like to say immunosuppression, your anti-infection drugs, anti-nausea, and a couple of other bits and bobs, and altogether they'll create a picture that ideally we get to a point in your life where you're taking no more medications. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's that concept of this, this is this is the the most, and from here we'll work on tapering everything down. Yeah, and yeah, that, yeah what you said is perfect. Every, every group plays a plays a part in kind of protecting or providing some sort of care, mm. and in the transplant picture, and it's about um, getting through these next few months after they leave home. Yeah. Sorry, leave hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
this is a question probably more for me than anything else, and I, I just don't really understand it. There's a quite a financial burden with medications. What does it mean when medications are on the PBS, not on the PBS? You can get them over the counter, but sometimes it's better with a script. Yeah, oh, very good Break question. Break that down it's, for me. It's a pharmacist <laughs> nightmare, this yeah. uh, scenario. So basically the medications on the PBS are the ones that the federal governments said they will subsidise and fund. So, for example, your posiconazole, uh, not to talk about numbers, but a week's supply is about $800 or so. Oh, if wow. you, The cost of the pure medication. Now, the patient will pay for a month either if they have a concession card, six, 660 or so, or thirty, or nearly $40, but then the remainder of that cost is subsidised by the government. They're all those medications that are on the PBS and there's a PBAC committee and the TGA will decide what drugs will go on the PBS for certain indications. Okay. Now, especially in the transplant setting, there are a few drugs that we use that we know work well and we know that are important, but don't often fit the PBS criteria. Yeah. So those become what we call non-PBS medications. And mm. then the question is, well, who will kind of fund that? Because often it's not, you can't ask patients, it's way too expensive. And then we have um, agreements with the hospital or sometimes the drug companies themselves will pitch in and kind of pay oh, for okay. them. Uh, and so that's more of our non-PBS compassionate drugs. And then the example you said where some things are just cheaper over the counter. For example, magnesium is a good uh, example yep. of that where you can get a, you know magnesium powder from certain pharmacies a lot cheaper than what the hospital does. And yep. that's... Basically, you know, down to buying power, some pharmacies can just buy it a lot cheaper than the hospital can. Oh, okay. And then the hospital has, you know, sells it at a standard price, but the pharmacies themselves can yep. sell it a lot cheaper. But not all magnesium is created equal. A very good point. Not all magnesium is created equal. And some magnesiums, especially the powder, for example, coming more and more in favour, have some added ingredients in there. So it's always good to check what's which in one? there, which one, what's yeah. in there. Sometimes there's some vitamin D or there's some manganese mm. or things that are okay in small quantities, but if you need to take a lot to keep your magnesium level up, may lead to some toxicities. Yeah. So I know patients talk a lot about you get patients cheaper at at our, well, our hospital, Peter Mac or Royal Melbourne, and I presume it's the same at the Alfred. Yes. But if you go to their community pharmacist, it can be a little bit more expensive. Yes. Yep. yep. So example, a good example of that is something like the viral prophylaxis, valacyclovir. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not on the PBS for prophylaxis after a transplant or after intensive chemotherapy. Uh, but we know it's important for preventing yep. um, viral infections. So we're there, the hospital decided we'll only charge the patients their co-payment amount, uh, but the hospital will subsidise the rest of the cost. Okay. Now the hospital, so the hospital is paying for the remainder. Now if you go into the community, the community pharmacy is not going to yeah, subsidise no, that, that extra sense. cost. They'll charge the patient the full price of that medication. So that's where that difference comes in. Oh, okay, thank you. Have you got any other sort of tips when you educate patients, even for healthcare professionals? What we learn in, I think, university is someone, when you have an interaction with the patient at discharge or counselling time, they'll take away maybe 25% of everything you say. It's disheartening. It is disheartening, but I think that's human nature and that's probably the reality of things. Everything I say, all the important points, have it written down on the medication list, provide other written information so we have Mm. some patient information for specific drugs like your cyclosporin or prednisolone so they can that they yep. can go home and read. We've had a lot of involvement with patient liaisons who say they actually want more information, yep. uh, but written down is better so they can, in the, when they go home and they're in their own time, when they're packing their dose box, yep. they can look back and read mm. into it. So I refer to a podcast. Refer to a podcast. That's why this is great because <laughs> uh, patients, and such a good platform to get that information across. Yep. Written information mm. is very important as well. 
at that discharge point is just keeping things pretty simple as well. Yep. It's always easy to get inundated, especially with side effects. Yeah. And sometimes giving written information that has about a list of 20 different side effects. Yep. Everything and causes a headache. Everything yeah. does cause a headache, yeah. nausea, vomiting and diarrhoea. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, there are some key things that we can tell you that to keep an eye out for. Google's such a great resource in some ways, but you have to kind of balance that with, is it ap- applicable to you? Mm. Does it match my scenario? Um, is the source credible? I think that's yep. the most important thing. Um, you know, when you throw up on, when you put a search on Google, sometimes what you get straight away isn't the most credible source. So I mm. think... From that point, if there's a concern, then you have to kind of have that conversation with your um, healthcare practitioner and say, is this happening to me? Uh, Can this happen to me? And then often we'll have the resource there to say, look, there's a chance of this side effect happening is around uh, 10% overall and we can monitor for A, B, C, D to see if it's happening to you. And transplant, bone marrow transplant is quite niche. It is very niche. it's, It's not necessarily a quick Google away. Talking to transplant trained health professionals would probably be the first, um, yes. would be the best thing to do. Yeah. 100%, yes. Yeah. Yep. Like cyclosporin is such a good example yeah. where, um, you know, the doses we use in the allograft setting is somewhat different to what they use in other like solid organ transplants or say, say for some dermatological conditions. So uh, yeah. you won't always have the same side effect profile. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That's, that's really That's really helped my understanding. Not a problem. No, I think, yeah, the other key thing I want to say to patients or carers is be involved. Don't be scared to ask questions. Um, I think that's the best way you'll get most understanding yeah. of what's going on with the medications. And yeah. also as health professionals, provide an opportunity for patients to ask questions. So whether that's at the outpatient appointment or even sometimes I say, we have our pharmacy phone number on the medication list and I say that's a nine to five number, but if you have an after hours question, then you call the ward who can get in touch with us, but always feel free to ask a question yeah. and rather than don't feel scared not to and don't hold back from um, asking a question if you have one. Thank you. That's great advice. Thanks for listening and hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we have. If you have any queries for the Straight and Marrow team or suggestions for future shows, please email us at straightandandmarrow at gmail.com. Although our team are experienced healthcare providers, we are unable to give individual medical advice. If you have a medical query, please speak to your treating team. See you next time at the Straight and Marrow and don't forget to subscribe to receive podcast updates.